This is Darrell Lalia, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast, episode 202. Bing bong. Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest the needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and and global entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey, this is Mark Asquith, the host of the 7 Minute Mentor podcast, global entrepreneur and all-round geek, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. I am MC Lobster, the Cashflow Ninja, and you're listening to Before the Millions podcast. You're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. But whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent, You've come to the right place. Mr. Hollywood himself presents the Before the Millions podcast. And now your host, DeRay Olalaye. What is going on, good people? Welcome back to a brand, a brand spanking new installment of the Before the Millions podcast. I'm so excited to be with you all today. I'm your host, DeRay Olalaye. And on today's episode, we are featuring... Mr. Bob Wheeler. Mr. Bob Wheeler is the founder of The Money Nerve. And on today's episode, we're talking all about healthy and unhealthy relationships with money. So if you're looking for a little bit of financial therapy, if you've come to the conclusion that working a few extra hours or working towards that bonus or getting a second job, or finding a new investment vehicle, all these things haven't yet quite gotten you to your goal, then maybe we need to stop looking external and trying to find outside things to get us to our financial goals. Maybe we need to start looking internal. And maybe there's an internal diagnosis that can help us get further faster. And oftentimes, some of our money beliefs stem from childhood. Some of our money problems stem from our relationships with friends, family, and coworkers. You'll hear a story on today's episode where a woman was sabotaging her business just to figure out if her mom loves her. You'll hear Bob's story where he would always spend all the money he had just so when people asked him for money, he could confidently say, I don't have any money to give you. All right, so there's a lot of these financial blocks that we may uncover for you on today's episode that you didn't even know you had. Who pays for dinner when you go out with your parents? Who pays for dinner when you go out with your siblings? Who pays for dinner when you go out with your kids? What's your comfort level? Have you been making the same amount of money for the past three years, five years, 10 years, and you just don't know how to break past that? Are there any money exercises that can help you with some of the potential problems that we'll discover on today's show? Yes, there are. And... We'll talk about those as well. So if you're in for a little bit of financial therapy, as it pertains to entrepreneurs and real estate investors, then strap in because this is the episode for you. Now, if you're not a longtime listener of the show, please go ahead and head over to your podcasting app and go ahead and subscribe. 
right? Every single week, we bring you hard-hitting real estate entrepreneurs from literally all over the world to talk about their journey, their story, to help you on your journey. And while you're subscribing, because that literally takes one click, one button, two seconds, in that same app, go ahead and leave us what's called a rating and review. With that being said, it's the end of the year. I mean, man, 2021, wow. Where did you come and go? So every year, as some of you are well aware of, I do what's called a top 10 book list of the year. And I've been doing this book list since 2016. So I think we have, what's that, five top 10 book lists already? So this will be the sixth top 10 book list that I'll do. And... As some of you, again, already know, I read about a book a week. So roughly, I have about 50 books to choose from. This year, I have way less, way, way less. Like, I haven't read a whole lot of books this year. I've been on a podcast tier, right, for the whole year. But ultimately, this top 10 book list are books that I think will have a drastic, monumental impact on your life if you decide to read them. Many of the books I read, um, they're they're great. They're awesome. I get a lot of info out of them, whether it's a biography, a business book, a real estate book, an investing book, a nonfiction book. I read it, I read some nonfiction books as well. There's always a few that really just hit different. And I know the ideology, and it's almost a cliche, really, that knowledge is power. But if you can understand, and this is why we do a before the millions book at the end of every single episode if you can understand the power the instructional guidance the confidence that you can get out of somebody else's journey or a step-by-step or an enlightenment or another idea it's worth more than 13.99 you're paying for that book 50 million times over and I always like to add to that statement that knowledge is not power, but knowledge acted upon is power. Because you can read these books all day and not do a thing, right? But when you act upon the knowledge that you've received, that's when you're at your most powerful. So if you're interested in this year's top 10 book list, it's coming out here soon. And we got some some really far left books out there like um, Exploring the World of Lucid Dreaming. Like, what? Lucid dreaming? What is that? Can I harness my dreaming and use that in real life? Like, this is getting into some woo-woo stuff, right? I don't know. Read the book. It's definitely going to be on the top 10 list. Another book that's definitely going to make the top 10 list is a book called Under and Alone. This is about an FBI agent who goes undercover. Real life. This is a real life story. This is his biography. He goes undercover inside of one of the world's most dangerous motorcycle gang just to infiltrate them and take them down. It's insane. And it's all true. (laughs) So, um, yeah, my top 10 book list, head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash resources. And again, acted upon knowledge, not just knowledge, but acted upon knowledge is one of the most powerful things that you could have in your arsenal. And now your feature presentation. When I was in the fifth or sixth grade, and I grew up in Tennessee, and most of my life, I was very quiet, surprisingly. In certain ways, I was very quiet, at least inwardly. And a lot of my life was based on fear. So I was very scared of things. But 
there was a certain point where I realized I could still be in my fear and still move forward. So I had all these dreams. Uh, I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to take over the whole world and all these things. But there was part of me that was very scared. Like, I can't like, you know, who am I to do that? And there was just this moment where having a talk with myself that I, I just said, do it anyway, like push through the fear. And one of the things that really got me going in my life was moving towards everything that I was afraid of and finding out that it didn't kill me. Yeah, absolutely. So as you kind of progressed through your life, like walk me through the, and, and did you go to college and did you start, you know, down that path and did you, did you pivot? Cause I know that, you know, today you're a CPA and you have your right. CPA firm, but how did all that come about? Yeah. So I was determined to be a lawyer. I was like, that was it. And then I realized as I got to college, I had taken all the accounting, I had taken all the law courses in high school, in college, I was doing pre-law, constitution law. I was taking accounting just to help my grade point. A friend of mine had said, hey, you know, I think you'd do well in accounting. You should take a couple classes. And I did, and it was an easy A. But to me, of course, it has to be hard work if you're going to earn something. You can't just do it easily. So there was no way I was going to go into accounting because that was just something easy. And I got into college, was doing all that, and realized I didn't really like any of the lawyers and the people that I was meeting as people. And maybe I just met some bad ones, but I realized at that point, I didn't want to go to any more school. I wanted to get out and I knew that accounting seemed to be a pathway for me. And so I went for my CPA, didn't pass the first couple of times, but I was very determined that I was going to get there. And as I started doing that, I was also, there was a point when I was at college that I could have been a music major or I could have been the lawyer, the accountant and all those things. My parents, my mom was an artist, not a very financially successful one. And my dad worked middle management and I didn't want to be poor. I didn't want to struggle. One of the things, because I did go to a nice college with a lot of wealth, I saw that there was a lot of choice with money and I didn't want to be in that place of, I don't get to choose because that had been my childhood. Money chose for me. You don't get to do that. You don't get to do this. And so I, I looked at all of it and I said, you know, I'm going to focus on the money. I'm going to focus on a career and something that is sustainable and something that gives me security because I didn't have that security blanket when I was a kid. Totally resonate with that for sure. And you think about some of the things that start to really define who you are, some of the events that you go through, right? As a child, uh, even in college, some of the experiences that you had, some of the thoughts and notions that you've had surrounding money, you didn't have security with money growing up. So naturally, as an adult, you want security with money. So again, I want to peel back the onion on a few of these things later on in our conversation, but I just want to make sure that we're building up the plot and we're showing like, hey, this is kind of where your money mindset started. And these are the things that you started to notice. And these are the things that you started to do to get out of that mindset, to get out of those habits. What are some of the other habits some of the other things that you think played a major part in how you viewed money early on? Well, I think one of the things that in terms of money, my parents weren't that responsible with it and not because they were bad people. They just didn't have the tools. And so with money, my parents would borrow our bank accounts, bar take money out of our piggy banks. And so for me, in the beginning, money was something that like you had to hold on to because even people around you might decide that they needed it for something different. So you had to hold it tight and not let anybody know that you have it. And, and so that was a struggle for me. Initially, I thought, wow, everybody else is going to get to get there but me because I've got these personal blocks that have been attached to me. What I realized, though, was as I started 
my mindset change was that if I could see my future, I could be my future. And I did not know at the time that that, that was something that people do. I just started envisioning, I'm going to graduate from college. This is going to happen. I'm going to get this job. And I just started deciding things were possible. And I would talk myself into them. And I also was able to talk myself out of things. The first couple of times I took the CPA exam, I took a study course and the guy said, if you don't think you're going to pass the CPA exam, you should get your money back right now. Don't take this prep course and get your money back because you're not going to pass. And I laughed to myself and I thought, well, I know I'm not going to pass, but if I take this course, maybe it'll get me over the hurdle. And of course I failed. And so the power of the mind is an incredible thing. Once I started really tuning in on the positivity of what was possible instead of what wasn't possible, it made it much more tangible that I could accomplish, that I could build a CPA firm, that I could go out on my own and that I could actually have money, heaven forbid, and have a little extra money. Absolutely. And as you were starting to take on clients, I think that you started to notice in the practice, right, with, you know, the clients that you had, that they had similar issues and similar problems. How did you first start to recognize this in your clients? Was it a conversation or were you looking at their books? How did you first start to recognize this? Well, what happened was there were several instances where entrepreneurs were coming to me and I was looking at everything with my practical advice and very logically saying, oh, you should do this and this, or you need to cut back here. You need to let a couple of employees go. And then the clients would go out and do the exact opposite. I'd get back with them and I'd say, how did that go? Yeah, I didn't do any of it. What do you mean? Yeah, no, it sounded really good, Bob, but couldn't do it. I'm like, what? And so that got me really curious. Like, why are these people not doing what I'm telling them? But at the same time, I was also aware that before I started my own practice and I was working at another CPA firm, that some of the people that had lesser titles than me, that were making less money than me, were making better financial decisions as well. Mm-hmm. And so I started to realize, wait a minute, I'm not listening to my own advice. <laughs> you know, everybody else is not listening to me, but I'm not listening to me either. Right. And so I started on this journey of self-exploration about why was I not doing the things that I knew were better for me. I knew what to do. I knew what was good for me and I wasn't doing it. And my clients were doing the same thing. So I started engaging in conversations with people, tax planning sessions turned into therapy sessions. And I really got really curious about what was going on for people internally so that we could then figure out if we wanted to change that or stay in the same situation. Once I could address that, it was a lot easier for people to say, I am ready to let that go. I'm actually ready to have my success. I would love to see if we can find an example of what type of internal change that you've worked through with the client that was just like, you know, we weren't even talking about, you know, the financial statements, the books, we're talking about, you know, what's going on, you know, between your ears, like, you know, what's going on in your mind? Like, what are you thinking? Like, what can you draw on something in the past that you? Yeah, I can. And this is sort of common, actually. But I had a couple of situations, but I'll, I'll talk about the positive one, where this client of mine, she would build her business up. It would be making, you know, a million dollars, $1.5 million in annual revenue. She was doing great. And two years later, she's negative. The business is about to crash and her mom would come in and save the business. And then she'd get the business back on track. She'd get back to her 1.5 million and then things are going really great. And then the business would fail. And her mom would come in and rescue her. And so this was going on for a period. And I finally said, hey, can we look at this? Because there seems to be a pattern here. You have this great success and it completely falls apart. Well, 
in just exploring what was going on and at the different points of where the success got really good and all these things we discovered or she discovered is that when she got really successful, her mom didn't need to help her. And then she thought, well, maybe my mom doesn't love me. And every time her business failed, her mom had a lot of money and her mom came in and saved her. It was the way she knew that her mom loved her because her mom came and saved her and rescued her. And I said, well, maybe you could just ask your mom if she loves you, or maybe you could just, you know, have a weekend with her, but maybe you don't need to keep sabotaging the business. Maybe there's a way to change that dynamic. And once she was able to see that really she was actually just trying to get her mom's approval and getting confirmation that her mom loved her, she was able to let that go. Her business has been thriving and continues to thrive. But until she saw that little block that was completely emotional, she was still going back to that mommy, mommy phase instead of, wait a minute, I'm a powerful woman and I I can take this where I want to go. Yeah, absolutely. I love that story. How did you guys get there? Like, how did, you know, there's so many things that you can listen to and you can draw on from a story and, you know, so many things that she could be feeling emotionally. How did you guys tie that together? So often when I'm talking to somebody that they're struggling, I'll ask them, you know, what, what are your money beliefs? What do you remember as a child? And how does that relate to what's going on right now? Is there anything familiar? And there might be a story of when I was a kid My mom would come in and save me when the people bullied me or, you know, the kid took my milk money and mom would come in and defend me. And so that's sort of a repeated story throughout life. And then I might start saying, what do you feel when you start having that success? I I feel really disconnected. I feel like a fraud. I feel like I don't deserve this. Other people are more deserving. And so we just start to go through all the stories that come up with having success, having the failure. What do we remember about childhood? Was it good or bad? Are we okay with having difficult conversations? And and just start to cull through all of that information and start saying, wait a minute, is this a story? Is this the truth? Is it serving me? I'm an accountant, so it's always cost benefit analysis. What's it costing me to my soul? Or what's it costing me financially? And what's the benefit? You know, my mom gets to love me, but the cost is I destroy my business. And so we just really start going through all those different stories and start saying, are we willing to do it differently? And then getting really conscious about what we say. So a lot of times people will tell me, Bob, I'm so broke. I am so broke. And I'll say, oh, that's so interesting because you've got two houses. You just flew to Paris. You've got $2 million in your, your retirement accounts. Maybe your cash flow is negative at the moment but you're certainly not poor. And so getting people to reframe and be really intentional in their words helps people to start to say, oh, I'm in a story. Uh, Let me change that. Some of your early beliefs, Bob, were you were saying earlier that money is tight, earning is not easy. How did you start to get yourself out of those beliefs that you had, right? Because it seems like you were making money a finite thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So emotionally, what about your personal journey in, in that conquest? How did you get out of that? Well, one of the first things that I discovered when I was looking at my money history was that when my parents got divorced, my mom, whether it was joking or whether she was serious or whether it was just off the cuff, my mom said to me, you know, Bob, you need to be really financially successful so your four siblings and I can have the life we deserve. And I thought, well, I don't want that responsibility. I don't want to have to pay make money to pay for all of my siblings and my mom. And so I purposefully started actually making sure I didn't have money 
So I didn't realize that part of the reason I would get rid of money was so that when my mom said, hey, can I borrow some money? I'd say, oh, I don't have any money. I wasn't lying. And so what it took for me was to learn to set a boundary and say, mom, love you dearly. I don't have the money to give you right now. And even if I did, I'm actually using it to, to take care of things that I need. And if there's some excess, I'll share it with you. But at the moment, I'm actually going to be in charge of my financial destiny and not tie it to what your needs are. And that was huge. That was really painful and scary. And once I started to let go of that and start to set boundaries and actually advocate for myself, it made it much easier. Now, for me, it was interesting was when I actually created my business and set up my checking accounts and my business stuff, I protected that like crazy. My personal accounts, I still had a little bit of messiness, but if that money was in my business, I took care of that. I wouldn't let it go overdrawn. I made sure I had money in the bank for taxes like that. I really nurtured, but when it was just me, I wasn't as nurturing. And I find that for a lot of people, we'll nurture and take care of other people or other things than we will for ourselves. And my business was something that I was able to just actually separate from my own personal and really, really push that forward. Mr. Wheeler, have you heard about the idea of a financial thermostat? I have not, but I'm curious. So we have what what's called a financial thermostat, right? So there are people or most people, I guess, would operate under the belief that they make a certain amount of money every single year. Yeah. And if they tried to make more, no matter how hard they tried, they would still make that same amount of money. That's uh, right. I don't know if you have a different name or term for it. I Just comfort level. But I exactly what you're talking about. My clients, if they're used to having five bucks in the bank, they're going to always have five bucks in the bank. And the minute they get an extra 50,000 or 200,000, they're going to spend it right back to that $5. Or some of my clients are just not overdrawn or $50,000. And I find that, yes, people have a comfort number and they gravitate toward it. And so no matter how much money's coming in, they're like, no, no, I got to get back to my comfort level. Instead of learning to say, oh, I could have more money. When I have clients inherit money or they have a big windfall, I ask them to see if they can leave the money in the bank for at least 30 days, if not longer, before they start paying the bills and start doing that. I said, just see if you can sit and tolerate having all that extra money in your bank account. And it's difficult for a lot of people. It's difficult. Yeah. yeah. The reason I bring that up is, but we've talked about, I love the conversation. We've talked about the fact that we have to break away from some of these money beliefs that we've had as a child. But I also want to talk about, because this is a show filled with financial abundance, how we get more financial abundance. And I do believe it again, that we often have these financial thermostats. And I love that exercise to be able to just sit with a large windfall for 30 days. Is there anything else that you could think of? Is there something that you know, our listeners could start to do when, you know, they see that year over year, like no matter how hard they try, where they work, what bonuses they get, the second job, like they're still making right around the same amount of money they've made the past five years or 10 years. And care to share any uh, insight? Well, I'm going to share something that I've started doing with clients and I do this in workshops and it's a little goofy, but it also, because I think money, sometimes we take it so serious. I find this really is a great exercise. I get people to go into their wallets and I get them to go online to their bank accounts and I get them to talk to their money. And I actually get them to say, hey, listen, hey, guys, go out and get a bunch of your friends and see if you can multiply and uh, bring in the Benjamins. Right. And just have this playful conversation with the money and like, hey, we're doing great things. I need some of you to stay and some of you go out and do some great stuff for me and then come back with more of your friends. And, and I get people to do this playful conversation so that they're not so focused and so serious about the money, but to make it a little bit of a game. 
but the reality is to start to open and welcome that abundance in like, yeah, I do want some more dollars in my wallet and in my online bank accounts and to just be a little bit more playful because I do think a lot of times I've got clients that are so fixated on making the money and then they don't actually learn to appreciate or have fun with the abundance. You know, I have a client who's 85 years old, $2 million cash in the bank besides all the other money. And he won't spend a dime of it because just in case, <laughs> and I'm like, you got to take, I actually forced him. I told him you have to take $50,000 and spend it by the end of the year, or I'm not going to do your taxes anymore. What? You know, but he won't enjoy it. And he's worked so hard for it. And so I want to cultivate that abundance mindset, that grateful and appreciative appreciation for the money, not just, oh, I've earned it, but like learning to enjoy it and go, yeah, look, I worked hard for that. Or maybe I didn't, but there it is. I like it. I like it a lot. What are some of the early resources that really helped you cultivate your, your newer money mindset? Are there any things that really stood out that helped you along this path? Well, I think there's a couple of books, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Power of Focus were two good books that really helped me change my mindset. And I think I was just fortunate that I had a lot of good mentors that saw possibility in me, even when I didn't and just kept pushing me along. And so I think I also was fortunate that I did have a lot of people that were rooting for me and pushing me in the direction of you can do this, even when I didn't think so. Talk to me about the idea of financial therapy. Yeah. So financial therapy, you know, people will say, I don't need therapy and I don't have issues with money. We all have issues with money. I mean, one of the best ways that I can describe that is I was talking to my editor and she said, look, I don't have any money issues. It's great that you talk about money and emotions, but it's not an issue for me. I said, well, when you go out to lunch with your dad, who pays? She said, oh, well, my dad pays. I'm his little princess. I said, okay, well, who pays when you go out with your mom? She said, oh, I do. I feel so bad. My dad left her and I just feel bad for it. And I said, well, who pays when you go out with your sister? And she goes, oh, we pay 50-50. It's equal. She's like, oh, okay, I get it, right? We do have these attachments. You know, if, if she's going out with daddy, she's the princess. If she's with mom, she's the hero. If she's with her sister, she's equal 50-50. Isn't, isn't that so fascinating? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? And I mean, go into a large room with people and ask to split the bill, right? Watch everybody freak out. Some people run to the bathroom. Some people go, I didn't drink. I didn't have dessert. I just had French fries. Some right? people and, put their heads in their phones and yeah, they'll figure like, it out. <laughs> and then somebody else is like, I'll pay for everything. So everybody right. knows how good I am, right? So the dynamics of just splitting a, a check at a restaurant, you see so much going on. And even with the, you know, I deal with this a lot when, when people die and there's an estate and you watch people ready to kill each other over 50 bucks. And, and it becomes insane. There's so much emotion attached to it. And so for me, just really being able to, to look at all that and start saying, where am I guilty of that? Where does that play a big part in my life? Where are the emotional blind spots that I've been holding on to so that I could move past it and just not judge it, just go, wow, that's so interesting. I like it. Is there a process or is there somewhere that you can recommend for people or maybe it's something that you do, but where can people or how can people start to give themselves or go seek financial therapy? Yeah. So, I mean, the best way is we certainly do that. We do one-on-one -on -one coaching. The book, The Money Nerve is a great way. I have couples read that book together because it's got at the end of each chapter, it's got calls to action. 
And so couples can start to learn each other's history and start to understand why they react the way they do. And so again, it's not to be judgmental and make them wrong. It's just to understand, oh, they came from a family, there was a lot of scarcity and I came from a family with lots of abundance. And so therefore I can just say, oh, okay, we wrecked the car, just buy a new one. And they're looking at it going, oh my God, that's the last dollar. I'm never going to get another dollar. And then to understand, okay, we're just coming from different places so that we can then get on the same page. But the book is a great place. And there are actually now, there are financial therapists out there. There are people that work with people specifically around their money, because it's a thing. We're all making financial decisions every day. Do I make my lunch? Do I buy my lunch? Do I take the fancy trip so my friends will be impressed? Do I save my money? What am I trying to do? And we make those decisions all day long. I don't want you to endorse anybody if you don't want to, but do you have any popular recommendations or any anything you can, uh, any link you give our listeners? Um, I don't. If you Google financial therapists, there's an organization that lists out a lot of those folks. I prefer not to recommend people because I'm really like, when I recommend, like, I got to know that it's going to be a perfect fit. So I don't like to just generally go, oh yeah, go out and this, or this brokerage firm is great, or these people, but there are some great folks out there, but you also have to trust yourself and go with somebody that, re- you know, that you resonate with. You know, I've gone to a couple of therapists and in two sessions, I've said, this is not for me. And then I just trusted that. And they're like, well, wait, why? I go, it doesn't matter why. It's not working for me. Yeah, I need absolutely. to move on. Absolutely. It's just more of a feeling that you have. Yeah. yeah. I like it. Speaking of investments, this doesn't have to be an investment of money, but it can. What's one of the best or most worthwhile investments that you've made in yourself? Again, it can be an investment of money, of time, of energy. What comes to mind for you? Well, two things come to mind. Investing in college for me was very powerful. It changed, probably changed the my life path, going to the college that I went to and getting the experiences that I had. And the other thing that I would say is I was involved in an organization. I did a four-year program called Radical Aliveness, which is a core energetics program. It's a somatic therapy and leadership program. And for me, that was also very life-changing. It helped me to just really step out of my fear because even though I was successful, I still had a bit of that fear in me. And so I, every success had to be met with an even bigger success as because I was socialized to believe that I am my accomplishments. So I had to keep accomplishing. And radical aliveness really helped me to just step into and feel the fear and say, it's okay whether I have more accomplishments or not. I'm enough just as I am. And so that was a really pivotal piece for me as well. So investing in yourself, I think is a real key element for success, at Absolutely. least for me. Absolutely. I love it. Well, Mr. Wheeler, this has been an amazing podcast episode. This episode is brought to you by PropStream. Oh, before PropStream. Before PropStream, I struggled with subpar list providers that overcharged, wasted gas going to the county courthouse only for them to run out of CD-ROM copies of this month's liens list. I wrongly estimated repair costs or just simply lacked the access to the MLS that I truly needed to get deals done. I mean, it was a nightmare networking with realtors hoping to get access to their software. To make things worse, I did marketing on a bunch of different platforms, all of which, by the way, came with the monthly costs. And I would grab my CD-ROM, I would head home, I would convert it, I would upload the list to a skip trace service, and then a ringless voicemail service, and then a postcard service, and so on. Wasting hours and missing potential deals. By the time I was finally in a position to talk to a seller, my leads were stale. And I had to start over again since I wasn't able to get real-time updates of properties that sold or were taken off the market. Lots of real estate investors are in this position and lots of real estate investors are losing. 
Last year, I specifically brought PropStream specialists in-house to revamp our lead generation systems, and it was instantly a game changer. Not only is PropStream one system that houses all my leads and is updated in real time, but this system has MLS level data, even in non-disclosure states like Texas where I invest. So now we run our own comps, our own rehab estimates, our own title searches, all of this in one app. Yes, one single app. And here's the kicker. That just scratches the surface of the power of this app. We also generate all of our leads lists with this app, from pre-foreclosures to bankruptcy and tax liens, by by county courthouse. And then once we have those dynamic lists, we can also use PropStream to market to those leads with postcards, email marketing, voice drops, and they even throw in unlimited number of landing pages so that you can have a site up and running in less than three minutes. Obviously, something like this should cost easily hundreds or thousands of dollars, but for less than $100 a month, you could own the most powerful real estate tool that I've probably ever seen. For the listeners of this show, make sure you head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash deal. That's D-E-A-L, beforethemillions.com forward slash deal for a few dollars off of your monthly subscription. I went from seven different apps to operate my business down to two once I made the switch to PropStream. And more than anything, really, it's provided me and my team with more clarity and peace of mind. That link again is beforethemillions.com forward slash deal to gain access to the all-in-one real estate tool that'll transform your business. Lifestyle Design Acceleration Hacks. What is your favorite Before the Millions book? The Power of Focus. That is an amazing book. Jack Canfield. I give that book out to everybody that'll take it. I reread it. It's an amazing book. I love it. What is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or tool. Well, this will sound, this is accounting geeky. I love QuickBooks and I love really good accounting software. I like it. I like, you can't disagree with that. <laughs> 100%. What do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed? That I get to do what I want. And if I'm complaining that I'm too busy or don't have enough time, it's my own fault. I love working for myself and I don't think I could work for anybody else. Amen to that. <laughs> <laughs> what were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? I had to let go of some of my friends that were holding me back. I had to decide that I wanted to focus on the future and really focus on delayed gratification, knowing that if I did some things today that they would pay off in the future, especially in LA, it's really easy to get caught up in, mm. no, go do this and go do that. And I just had to say, yeah, no, that's, I'm, I'm gonna go do this. And so, there, the sacrifices, it can be a little lonely sometimes when you're going for your goals because everybody wants you to be in the here and now with them. And I wanted to be able to focus on here and now, but also focus on this is really what I want and I don't want to get distracted. I want to be very intentional in what I do. Who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? So I would have to say it was my Boy Scout leader, Jim Maynard. He was, Boy Scouts was a big part of my life and we did a lot of camping and did all kinds of stuff. But when I got the opportunity to go to this college, Rhodes College, I was actually thinking of staying home, going to a community college, helping my mom out because my parents had just gotten divorced. And he pulled me aside and he said, I heard that you got a scholarship and an opportunity to go to this college. It's a really top rated college. I said, yes, sir. And he said, so listen, if you decide to stay in this small town, Clarksville, Tennessee, which I love, 
But if you want to stay in this town, I will help you get a job. I'll help you do whatever you need to do. But my advice is turn around and run as fast as you can. Get your butt out of this town. He used a couple of explicit, you know, cuss words. And I was like, you're, you're using cuss words. It's my Boy Scout leader. And he's like, get, get your butt out of town and you go take that scholarship and you go to that college. It's going to change your life. And it did, it really did, because I got to be with people who lived in a different world than I did. Some of the, you know, some of my classmates flew in on private jets. It was a different world that it really opened me up to that I would have never known had I stayed in my small town, which is now a big town, but at the time a small town. Absolutely, I totally, absolutely believe that. Last but not least, why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions, even though we have every intention of getting to the millions? I think it goes back to mindset. I think that even though we say, I wanna be rich, I wanna be abundant, there's an undervoice that tells us we don't deserve it, or we're not capable, or we're trying to prove mom and dad right, or prove mom and dad wrong. And so I think it goes back to that mindset that says, everybody but me gets to go on that journey. And I think once we can discover that undervoice get it to quiet down and focus on what we really truly want, we can have it. Couldn't have said it better myself, Mr. Bobby Wheeler, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. Wheeler, if the listeners want to learn a little bit more about you, they want to check out what you got going on, they want to say hi, pop in, ask you a question or two, where can they find some of your information? And check out the book as well. Absolutely. TheMoneyNerve.com. That's nerve, not nerd. Uh, TheMoneyNerve.com. That's got my access to my CPA practice. It's got access to the book. It's got access to my podcast. It's got access to our online course. And we've got a lot of free resources there. But if you're having any doubts that you have any emotional tugs around money, feel free to just check us out or reach out. We love connecting with people and helping them get on their path. Love it. And the links, ladies and gentlemen, to everything that we discussed on today's episode will be in the show notes. Thank you so much, Mr. Wheeler. And we will talk to you very, very soon. Thanks so much.